On the podcast today, we're talking all about green bonds, and there's no better guest to help us understand the world of fixed income than Stephen Fitzgerald. Stephen is the founder of Affirmative Investment Management, a specialist firm that manages only impact bonds. Their pure play approach makes green bonds, social bonds, and sustainability bonds available to more investors with no need to make a trade-off on returns. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Stephen has a lot of insights to share in this one, from the early days of his career at Goldman Sachs, over to his roles with QBE, the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, and of course, Affirmative. I really enjoyed this one. Stephen is a genuine guy and he's putting his deep understanding of financial markets to good use. So let's get into it. All the show notes and links are on my website at johntreadgold.com. If you have any comments, shoot me an email or leave a review on iTunes. And now there's nothing left to do but dive into my chat with Stephen Fitzgerald. Here we go. Stephen Fitzgerald, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Now, Stephen, we've got a lot to talk about, especially Affirmative, your firm. But first of all, I'd love to hear about your farm in Sussex. You're talking to us from the UK and Kate Temby, who introduced us, she did warn me you'd be willing to talk all day about this, but it does sound great. So can you give us a quick rundown of where you're holed up? Yeah, so I'm down in East Sussex, down towards the coast, but uh, not down that far. And so 1066 country, as they call it, so not far from where the Battle of Hastings took place and and actually only a few hundred metres from Rajat Kipling's uh, house, Bateman's. Is it a working farm? I hear you've uh, done your best to make it as sustainable as possible. It is a a working farm. I'm not sure it's a terrific business, but it it does actually make money, but it's a sustainable farm. So it's really run as an old fashioned farm. It's a mixed farm. We, We have some crops, we have beef and we have sheep, but we really do run it as a mixed farm, gone back to more traditional techniques around crop rotation. We don't use sprays. We don't use fertilizer. We've created wildlife reserves, begun to manage the forest as they used to be managed as well. So yeah, a bit of an old fashioned farm. It's interesting when you say you do make money, but not a money making venture. Are there some elements that you think of traditional farming that could become commercial that we could see the full cycle, you know, to have a less impactful farming? I want to say it doesn't uh, make money. It does make money. I would say it doesn't make a great return on equity. So I'm not sure it's a business you'd invest in from a purely financial uh, point of view. But absolutely, I think at the moment, consumers are displaying more choice in where their foods come from and the distance their foods travel. And I think providing there is an organic or sustainable premium, albeit small at the farm gates, more and more farmers will be encouraged down the sustainability path. And of course, that, you know, all factors that are part of your firm, affirmative investment management a fixed income investment manager that you founded, but most importantly, you only deal in impact bonds. So can you tell me what drew you to the world of green bonds? So the journey to sustainability and the intersection of finance and purpose actually began uh, a long time before we founded Affirmative. Really, it came, my, my background is mainstream investing. I was chief investment officer for Goldman Sachs Asset Management for fixed income and currency. 
I spent you know, 20 years at Goldman Sachs. But it really was in Australia when I was based in Australia and came through the Great Barrier Reef Foundation where I serve on the board. And, and we began to look at doing a bond issue for the Great Barrier Reef back in, I guess, 2010. And became more and more interested in the ability to mobilise capital for purpose and really mobilise mainstream capital, but recognising that you can only mobilise mainstream capital by delivering mainstream returns. So that intersection has to work both from an impact and a return perspective. And that really was the foundation, the core philosophy behind Affirmative as well. And so that's quite a shift. What was the genesis of the move after 20 years at Goldman Sachs to start Affirmative? Part of it was a, a personal passion. After I left Goldman Sachs, I, like many people, went down sort of more of a portfolio career. I served as a um, on the board of Guardians of the Future Fund in New South Wales government on the expert advisory group for social impact bonds. So again, investing and sustainability and impact. Then we moved to the UK more for family reasons and saw an opportunity to hire a team and to begin affirmative investment management and really to take what had been done in a sort of in a board role and see if we could actually turn it into a real business and really begin to disrupt the way people were thinking about investing and, and be part of the, that grouping of people, that community of people they're also beginning to, to shift the way people felt about investing. And in that decade, so much has changed in the world of, of not only impact investing, but especially in, in the world of green bonds and social bonds and sustainability bonds. Can you give us a quick rundown of, of how you define those terms and what's really unique about the green bond, which I think has sort of become a bit of an umbrella term? From a financial perspective, a green bond, a social bond or a sustainability bond is just a bond. It's generally the senior debt of the issuer pays a fixed or floating coupon and it matures at par. It's just a bond. And generally, they trade at approximately the same yields as equivalent conventional securities of that issuer or equivalent issuer. So just a bond. What makes them a green bond or a social bond or a sustainability bond is what the proceeds are used for. And for a green bond, the proceeds used to need to be used to make loans or fund projects that have the benefit of reducing carbon emissions or helping communities adapt to more volatile weather. So flood defences in Holland, for example. So from a financial perspective, just a bond, uh, but it's what the proceeds are used for that makes it a green bond. Social bond, exactly the same thing, but there's a social outcome. An example last year was the Africa Development Bank COVID-19 bond where the Africa Development Bank launched a bond where the proceeds of the bond were segregated for purposes around direct medical facilities in African countries or to invest in projects designed to offset the negative economic impact of COVID-19 in African countries. But again, from a financial perspective, senior debt of ADB, AAA rated issuer, just a bond. I often see this paradox of green bonds where the most exciting part of the green bond is, as you said, it's the mandate around the use of the proceeds going towards all sorts of sustainability projects. But when a big new bond is announced, they tend to only focus on, on the big dollar figure. There may be a line in the press release about a focus on renewable energy or water infrastructure, but the only hard metrics are that dollar figure. To me, there seems this distinct lack of impact metrics up front. I know that often there won't be projects that have been identified just yet, 
But is that sort of a lack of, of ambition about trying to come up with some clear outcomes that it's aiming for? How do you see that issue? So when we're looking at a new issue, uh, first of all, we look at both the issuer through an ESG lens, but we also look at the issue itself and the framework that they have put forward to govern how the proceeds will be used. And the robustness of that framework is really important. But as you rightly point out, they may not have identified the individual projects that sit below that framework. Where we find that is when we're doing the impact reporting, one of the key criteria for us is transparency and measurement. And so when we're doing impact reporting, we're building impact reporting up from the underlying project level. So by way of example, for one of our funds last year, it owned 80 bonds in the portfolio. But those 80 bonds funded 1,350 projects in over 140 countries. And we're capturing data at that project level to give that real granularity as to impact. But you're absolutely right. It's the framework you're looking at on the day of issue. That's a, a huge pile of data to, to try and turn into an impact report, 80 bonds and, and so many projects. And, and obviously a framework is, is so vitally important there. And, and I'd assume that the SDGs are a big part of that. How do you go about categorizing that impact to, to make it really impactful at the, the portfolio level? You're absolutely right. It is a big data exercise. When we started AIM, we knew that we wanted to to have data and own data. We outsource the construction of the architecture to a third party, although we do own the code as well. But the Arch database is the engine which allows us to do that impact reporting. So when we first analyze a new issue, again, we are looking at the issuer as well as the issue. And that is somewhat different to, to some others where it's only the issue itself that is evaluated. We think the ESG standards of the issuer are absolutely critical in terms of the robustness of the investment and actually the delivery against the framework as well. But we initially tag that bond to a series of, of categorizations. So if it's a green bond, is it uh, more focused on adaptation or is it more focused on mitigation? If it's a social bond, is it focused on employment? Is it focused on social justice or health? So we are categorizing it at day one and we tag it to SDGs as well. But again, the robustness of the process around that tagging is really important because there's, there is double counting of SDGs and there is a term that they, people use now called colour washing, which is tagging to SDGs the colours without having a robust process. Yeah, look, that's very interesting. We've talked so much about the SDGs on this podcast and since 2015, when they were launched, investors really have taken hold and, and used that framework to measure their impact. How have you seen that evolution? Some, as you say, there's that color washing of the different 17 colors. Do you see on the whole that it's been positive, that it's been a positive reallocation of capital and that it's only going to get better towards 2030? Completely. I, I think it's very positive that people are focused on this and that asset owners really becoming more and more focused, not just on those risk adjuster returns, but the impact they're having. And the SDGs is one lens for analysing that impact. So I think it's a really positive development. And I think when it comes to the, the quality of SDG tagging, and the robustness of it, 
It's all about transparency. Transparency about methodology. There are assumptions that go into how you tag. As long as you're transparent about it, there's no right, you know, one right way of doing things, but it's about being open about your methodology. Exactly the same thing with the methodology we use for the estimating of the carbon um, mitigation of projects, which uh, we call carbon yield. We co-developed that with a number of others, um, including the Rockefeller Foundation. At carbon yield, all the methodology is in the public domain. It's got its own website. And so when people are thinking about how they're going to estimate something like that, at least there's complete transparency as to the assumptions that are going to underlie the numbers that we put out. And you've spoken a little bit there about, about verification. You talked about how you verify the issuer and the issue, so the bond itself, in terms of who's issuing it and, and then what they're producing. Can you talk a little bit more about that depth? If up front they make claims about what the bond funds are going to be used for, and then at the tail end when you're doing your impact reporting, you see that some of the projects may not quite fit. How do you manage that? The impact reporting is a critical part of one, staying engaged with the issuer, but also a proof statement as to is the framework that they talked about at the beginning being delivered on and what are the results that they're seeing from those investments they're making or the loans they're making. And we stay engaged with those issuers. And we have had examples where we've seen issuers drift off purpose, drift away from where we think that the framework should be. The initial is to engage with them and talk to them about it. We've had positive engagement with most issuers. Uh, We can understand why these particular projects or loans were made and how they are viewed as fitting into the framework. We've also had examples where they've strayed further away and despite engagement, have continued to, for example, fund things that we would not be comfortable with within the framework that they outlined. And so we've had verification downgrades. And if an issuer is downgraded for a verification reason, a bit like credit downgrade, the portfolio managers have a fixed amount of time to remove that particular security from the portfolio. We have so many different instruments and I I do cover quite a breadth in my show. We cover everything from public and private equities all the way over to bonds. and, And there's lots of different structures, but through it all, this word impact is used. And so I think it's important to define the differences because they are quite stark. Bonds really do seem to be an ideal platform for impact investments. Uh, you can have a small group of investors deploying large sums, which is a, the good calculus, and it can be for a clearly defined purpose. And then, as you said, you can have that, that iterative oversight of where the funds are going. Is that how you see it? How do you see that that structure and the ability to apply and measure impact? Yeah, Affirmative, when we established, we set up with a, a view that we were going to do a very small number of things at a really high standard rather than try and do uh, a large number of things. So we are only focused on impact fixed income. We only do one thing. But I, looking at the other asset classes of which I invest in, the robustness that you can get in fixed income. I think it's a bit easier, frankly, because you've got a defined use of proceeds. In most cases, I can talk about the cases where there may not be a defined use of proceeds, but in most cases, there's a defined use of proceeds. There's direct uh, information flow on the underlying projects, which allows you to do impact reporting at a granular level and build that up, as I said, from the project level. The other thing which 
I think is a key metric which people should look at when they're looking at impact reports. And again, I think it's a little bit uh, more straightforward in fixed income than it is, for example, in equity, is the coverage ratio last year for our impact reporting across our portfolios was over 90%. It will never be 100 because there'll be some bonds that have not, that are newer in the portfolio that haven't reported. But despite the fact that the impact data collection was right, you know, right at the beginning of the COVID crisis, our coverage ratios remained above 90%. And I think if I'm looking at impact investments for myself, one of the key things I look at is that coverage ratio. So seeing how much of the portfolio you're really capturing data on. To switch gears a little bit, you're also on the board of QBE. And I think insurance is, is a really interesting field. And, and that firm is showing the potential for insurers to have an impact. They've got their premiums for good offerings. How do you balance the world of, of insurance and fixed income? All of my non-affirmative interests, whether it be the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, the Investment Committee of the British Museum, or, or serving on the board of QBE and chairing the Investment Committee, all of them have that, that same nexus of the intersection of finance and purpose. And that's the area that, that, frankly, I'm most passionate about. QBE has done some really innovative things on the investing side around the Premiers for Good program which is shortened to P for G uh, for Australia, and has built uh, a really insightful and robust impact portfolio within the general account, where we are targeting returns and returns that are consistent with the, the other assets of the general account, but have a positive impact. And I, it, it won awards for innovation and insurance. Very good. Can you give us some details about the way that they maybe even making it more simple and helping people understand how insurance operates and the fact that our premiums don't simply sit in an account, that the insurers use them to invest and, and use that capital and that they have that freedom to invest it where they like and that premiums for good insures that they go to, to certain projects. How do they manage that? Again, I'm not an insurance expert, but the way that it works is if you insure your car with QBE, you can tick a box and part of the premium you pay gets invested in the impact portfolio, the premiums for good program. It doesn't change for you as a consumer, the cost or terms or anything of your, of your insurance and consumers have bought into that. Once you pay your insurance um, before the claims are paid out, the insurance company invests those monies in the general account. And with premiums for good, part of those monies are invested in impact. With a target of achieving similar returns in the impact portfolio as, a general, as the rest of the general account. And so the asset allocation will be largely uh, mirrored, the general account, and we'll be looking for uh, investments across the different asset classes that produce mainstream returns, but also a positive impact. Switching back to the world of fixed income and impact bonds. There's obviously been a lot of change in the industry. We had the sort of avant-garde investors, such as the high net worth in investors, who perhaps were more altruistic, a little bit more focused, a little bit more hands-on. But largely, I think the world of sustainable investing has hit the mainstream. What interesting clients have you seen come on board lately that are sort of the new wave? It's, again, been a really interesting journey because impact investing in the early days, you're absolutely right, were foundations, uh, trust foundations, faith-based organisations, but it's become more and more mainstream. 
And so the quality of the clients that we have at Affirmative, we're, we're very proud of that quality. And they range from commingled vehicles, so mutual funds, through to institutional separate accounts. Some of those separate accounts are for very large traditional in investment organizations where you've had the conversation at the beginning is if you can deliver similar returns, similar financial returns to the conventional managers of this particular sleeve of fixed income, but you also can deliver positive impact, why would we not make that investment? And the more insightful ones are not creating a new categorization within their asset allocation for impact. They're allocating from their existing investment buckets. So we manage on behalf of a Japanese public pension fund, a euro long duration fixed income strategy. It has exactly the same benchmark guidelines and restrictions as conventional managers managing that same against that same benchmark. The only difference for us is we're restricting the universe to securities which through the verification process, through the spectrum process, we deem to have a positive impact. And then we are then reporting on that impact. And our returns have been consistent with best-in-class conventional managers. And to me, that is the future of investing. If you can deliver mainstream returns and impact, you know, why wouldn't you make that investment? You've had lots of experience in this space. What advice would you give to a, a young worker in the world of finance? Some advice about fixed income, but then about impact bonds as well. This is the future of investing and small firms like ourselves, but also the, the bigger firms are beginning to embrace this. And uh, I think that if you're passionate about investing today, you need to develop that passion for the impact you're having, because this is not going to be a topic we're, we're discussing in even five years time, because this will be absolutely mainstream. And John, just to go back to the beginning of that question, because it's not just young people. When we launched the um, fund in Europe, the assets that we gathered on day one were twice as significant as we expected with, with Lombard ODA. But when talking to underlying clients, by weight of money, I think we all expected it to be driven by millennials or the next generation of wealthy families making those investments. And, and clearly they were there. But by weight of money, it was older investors that were coming into it. More and more, I think people are thinking about even the legacy they leave, both in terms of the financial legacy, but the impact le legacy. So whilst young investors are absolutely driving this, yeah, older investors are there as well. And some of the most passionate people we have are people that are you know, older than me and driving sustainability through their own portfolios. Final question I ask everybody is for a book recommendation. I'd love to get a title from you, whether it be something that's impacted your career or just something that's on the side table while you're in lockdown. I'm going to go slightly uh, left field here, if that's okay. I'm from Armadale, New South Wales. There is a project that we're going to be supporting personally. They're trying to create a dictionary of the language of the Indigenous people of the area around Armadale and Walker. And so my book recommendation is going to be Surviving New England by Callum Clayton Dixon.
Yeah, that's something we need more and more of in Australia and, and timing's excellent recording this on, on the day after Australia Day. So thank you for that, Stephen. Some really great insights there and always keen to get some depth and some insights around the world of green bonds. I think people can can shy away from this word bond and then green bonds seem even more complicated. But, but as you explained, they really are just bonds and they, the beauty of them is that the uh, projects that they're used for are all for the greater good. So it's exciting and, and I hope people can dig a bit deeper into the projects Affirmative is doing and check out all of your portfolios. Thanks very much and thank you for your time. Not a problem. Thank you, Stephen. All the best.